Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go and turn to James chapter, uh, chapter 4. And we're going to be wrapping up this chapter this morning. Um, and as you're turning there, let me ask you a question about decisions that we make. Uh, uh, now, we all have decisions that we make. We have a, a plethora. It's a word I don't use often, plethora. But uh, we have a lot of decisions that we make daily. Uh, most of those decisions that we make are small, uh, menial things that we decide upon that we probably don't even think through the decision we're making, but nonetheless, we make a decision on things. But throughout our lives, there's also major things that we make decisions on. There's medium things, you know, as we range uh, the things that we may decide upon. Now, those smaller things, oftentimes, you know, how do we come to an answer on something? Sometimes, uh, I can weigh my options between uh, whether or not I want to eat Panda Express or Whataburger. It's a silly decision, but it's a decision nonetheless. But for many of us in here, when it comes to decisions like that, how do we choose? I venture to say that many of us have probably at some point in time flipped a coin. You know, come to Canton for lunch and there's Panda Express or Whataburger and flip a coin and decide which it is that I want to eat. And if you're anything like me, you look down and you just realize that you didn't determine which side was which. So you get to flip the coin again. You know, heads is Whataburger, tails is Panda Express. And then all of a sudden, it's heads. I think I want Chicken Express. <laughs> but how flippant we can be on some of the simpler decisions that we have to make. But the underlying thing that drives the deciding factor... The thing that drives the decision, as far as the answer we come to, is how we feel. For me, oftentimes, if I'm flipping a coin between two things, and then I land on that, I was like, mm, I don't know if I really want that. But I have the option to flip the coin again, and flip it again, and nope, it still tells. I don't, I don't think I want that. I feel like this. But nonetheless, that little coin, by chance, determined for me which I'm going to eat. Now, when do we not flip a coin? What decisions do we not flip a coin over? Right? The big ones, right? Should I, should I buy this car? You know, yes or no? Well, dang it, I didn't determine that. Flip it again. But yes or no? No, we don't flip a coin on buying a car, buying a house. Should I marry this person? If you flipped your coin on that one. Old Testament equivalent to casting lots, maybe, but, you know, this is the new covenant. But no, we don't flip a coin on those major decisions. But what is it that, that, what is it that drives us to making some of those major decisions? I don't think it's any different than what drives me to choose Chicken Express when my choices were two things that were not Chicken Express, but ultimately what I felt I wanted was what I decided upon and that even comes into play whenever we think about major decisions that we, that we make. Should I take this job? I don't flip a coin, but ultimately it comes down to a feeling. What do I feel about this job? Should I marry this person? What are my feelings for this person? So on and so on. But this is the idea that James begins to root out for you and I, is how we make the decisions that we make. Because there are always decisions to make, small or big, but what is the thing that's informing our mindset as we approach decisions that we make? So in James chapter 13, I want to read our text and then we'll talk through 
what he's getting at here for you and I. So in chapter 13, or verse 13, I'm sorry, chapter 4, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him is sin. So there's three words that if you're taking notes, you can jot down. If you're not taking notes, just maybe frame these in your mind or place them in your mind. These three words are things that that we're going to look at as James unpacks this for us. But the first one is attitude. First word is attitude, and then there's exposure, and the third word is obedience. But in verse 13, we find an attitude. James identifies an attitude that we have when it comes to decisions that we make. As we determine something, this person that he's writing or the people he's writing to, he's, he's saying this is a type of person who is determined for themselves something that's in the future, but an attitude is at heart in how they come to this conclusion. But in verse 13, he says, come now, you who say, he's saying, come now, you need to listen, listen to what I have to say to you, who would say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So the attitude of this person is that there's someone that says, here today, tomorrow, or at some point in the future, I'm going to go to this town and I'm going to do a thing and this is going to be the outcome of that thing. So this person has planned something. And they've taken many steps in that plan. Now, you and I plan a lot of things. All right, Monday morning, tomorrow, when I get into the office, I'm going to plan out my week. And I'm going to, as best I can, write down some meetings and things that I want to accomplish. Now, I know for certain from past experience that by the time I get to the end of that week, it probably didn't go the way I planned. That's just me. I don't know how it goes for you guys. might be my failure on my own. Am I by myself? No. But nonetheless, I make plans. So it's not sinful for me to make plans for my week. But the idea here is what we do is this person says, today or tomorrow I'm going to go into such and such a town. So they're setting their own schedule. Today or tomorrow, I'm going to go do a thing. They select their path into the town that they're going to go. They determine where it is they're going to go. I'm going to spend a year there. So they put limits on their schedule how long they're going to be there. They arrange their own schedule and that I'm going to go to this place, and then I'm going to trade here, but then they also predict their outcomes, and that I'm going to make a profit. In many ways, when you get to that end result, many of us make plans about a many of things. I'm sorry, I take that back. All of us make plans for a lot of things. But the attitude at heart here is right on the end to say, I'm going to go and do this, do this thing. I'm going to plan to spend about a year there. I'm going to plan to trade. But then we go so far as to predict the outcome, and I'm going to make a profit. Chuck Swindoll points out, there's nothing wrong here. These are everyday decisions. But this is James's point, is these are everyday decisions that you and I make. But how often in these everyday decisions are we including God in them? For James, it's the fatal defect in our planning, is this attitude, this presumptuous self-centeredness. It results in an effective exclusion of God. You could call this practical atheism. 
Now the question then becomes is, is when it comes down to a simple question of do I want to go eat at Panda Express or Whataburger? Isn't that kind of a menial decision? Really, should I include the God of the universe in whether or not I go eat somewhere? The answer is going to be yes, and we're going to get to why here in just a little bit. But just let that settle for a moment. As menial of a decision as that is, my heart can be against the Lord if I don't include him in that. I'm going to return to that here in just a minute. But it's always the big things, right? It's the tragedies that happen in our life that we include the Lord in. The natural disasters, all of a sudden, Lord, I need you in this. What is your real for this thing? Whenever we're in an emergency, those are the things that we naturally, we go to the Lord because we have no clue what to do because they are bigger than ourselves. So we ask him there to the exclusion of everything else that, oh, I think I can handle that. But now, verse 14, James lays out the exposure. He exposes what's beginning to, we, we see underneath. He says in verse 14, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So what's the reality? James says the reality is, is you have no idea what, what, what tomorrow will bring. He says, come now, listen to me, you who say, today or tomorrow, I'm going to go into this town, I'm going to trade, I'm going to make a profit, I'm going to go and do this thing. He says, be careful, because the reality is, is you have no idea what tomorrow will bring. He goes further to say, what is your life? It is a vapor, it is a mist, it's here for just a small amount of time. This is a text that can be used at a funeral, oftentimes just to illustrate the brevity of life, is that you and I don't know that at a moment's notice, our time can end. And any plans that we make to a future that we believe will exist could no longer exist. That's a reality that exists for you and I. And James says, you have no idea what tomorrow will bring. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Jesus illustrates this in Luke chapter 20, or Luke chapter 12. He exposes this through a parable. There's this man in, 13, in verse 13. says, someone in the crowd said to him, said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So, so you have this guy. Here's Jesus teaching about whatever he may be teaching at that time. And he says, hey, Will you tell my brother to, to, to give me half of the money that we're supposed to get? Jesus is like, why, why are you asking me that question? What have I to do with that? But Jesus always taking opportunity to teach. He said to them in verse 15, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable saying, So the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So things to note in here. Is there's a word in here, a phrase in here that you need to mark in this parable. Is This man who had crops and he had land and it produced 
plentifully. Before this man made a plan to anything in the future, what he had produced plenty for himself. And not only did it produce plenty for himself, he already had barns. And those barns that he had were already full. But it wasn't enough for this man. As he looks to his future, he sees that this barn can't hold as much grain as what I desire to, it, to hold now. It's not going to last for my future, disregarding the fact that his land is producing plentifully. And he has a mind to say, I don't believe goodness for my future, so I'm going to make plans to provide for my future. I'm going to build larger barns so that I can hold all my stuff, which in itself is not bad. Proverbs is... is often speaking of, the, of us needing to be prudent and plan ahead for our future. There's nothing wrong with planning for retirement. I wouldn't mind one day retiring. Now, I don't say at all that I plan on retiring from proclaiming God's truth because for the believer, there's no retirement from that thing. If that's our end goal is that we retire and we just sit and we eat, drink, and we be merry, but that's the problem with this man. He had plenty. But he looked to the future, he wanted more, he wanted to set himself up to where he could say to his soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for all your years, now you can relax, you can eat, drink, and be merry, you can sit and do nothing. If that is our goal, as this man Jesus says, you've got this flipped upside down, because at any point the Lord could come and say, your soul is required of you now, what comes of everything that you just stored up? Where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also. But for this man, he's planning outside of God's will, trying to set himself up for a time that he can just sit and do nothing. And that completely negates what should be happening today. In Psalm 139, verse 4 and 5, you have a contrast. You have a wonderful understanding that King David had. He says this in verse 4, he says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Right, so contrary to this rich man who wants, I want days ahead so I can just sit and do nothing. Here, King David, who has plenty, surely, he says, what is, what is the measure of my days? Let, let me know how fleeting I am. He says, behold, you have made my days few, a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing, nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. It's just an understanding of, of his days are short. His days are not promised. His, his life is just but a mist. It's a vapor that's here one day and can go against. And he's pleading to the Lord, Lord, let me understand that truth and let me act according to that truth. Here's this unknown quote that's pretty catchy. It says, yesterday is a canceled check gone forever. Tomorrow is a promissory note. It might never be redeemed. Today is cash in hand. Spend it wisely. I like to quote any opportunity I get from some children's movie that I like. But uh, Master Uguay, Kung Fu Panda, anybody? Yes. Anybody with me? Thank you. He says, yesterday is, a, yesterday is history, tomorrow a mystery. But today is a gift. That is why it's called the present. But the issue for you and I is, is what do we do with today? We can get too busy with ourselves, putting our mind to a future that is certainly uncertain. It's not promised in any way. And we can completely lose sight of the plenty that we have today. Matthew 24, 36 
speaking of a day ahead to come. Jesus says this, he says, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This day that he's speaking of is the day in which the Son of Man will come. This is the day in which the Son of Man, Jesus, will return specifically. Is the day in which Jesus himself on earth, who is here, is speaking of a day to come where he is going to return, implying at the time he's got to go. But he says these words. He says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. He said, I don't even know when I'm going to return, but the Father only. Now that day surely will come. Now see, for you and I as believers, the day in the future that you and I should be concerned with is that day in which he will come. That should shape what we do today. That should shape the way we plan our lives is according to his returning for us. Not for what we can gain between now and then or now and our end. But it's to look to that day that is coming and put our mind there and that impacts what we do now and how we decide things now. Now concerning the hour of Jesus' death, as far as example as to how Jesus walked through this, if he doesn't even know that day, but the Father does, how does Jesus submit to his Father's will? Several times throughout his ministry, as you read the gospel, Jesus comes to a point where he speaks of the hour in which his suffering would come, the hour in which we, he would give his life. But he says often that my hour has not come. The hour is not here yet. But in John chapter 16, after he... Uh, had the last supper with the disciples and they've gone out from the upper room. And then in verse chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. So all of a sudden, throughout Jesus' ministry for years, he says, My hour's not now. My hour's not now. My hour's not come. And then all of a sudden, it is here. And he says, My hour is coming. It is here indeed now. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, he was fully submissive to his Father's will knowing that one day this would come, but Jesus was prepared for that moment and that every moment of his life he pursued the Father's will, not his own. To the very point in the garden, praying sweat drops of blood, saying, Lord, would the Father, would this cup pass for me? But what? Not my will, but your will be done. And that leads us to verse 15 in our second, or the third word of obedience. The proper response for you and I is one of obedience. And that James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That is the example of Jesus. Jesus knew what he was sent on this earth to do. He knew the hour was not here yet, but all of a sudden that hour is here. His whole life preparing for that moment in that day to suffer well on behalf of mankind and to honor and glorify his Father. But he aligned himself with the Father's will, not his own, because if he had his own will, Jesus would have walked away from that suffering. His heart and his flesh was bent away from that the same way that ours would be. But he stayed in it because he was obedient to the Father and aligned himself with his Father's will. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. The second half of that word, word, verse says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
for you and I, yes, we can make plans for what our future may be. We can be good stewards of resources. We can be good business people. We need to plan ahead. But if we're not including the Lord on those plans, then we're just foolish. Pretending to know what may come, having no idea what may come. But if we include the Lord in that, the most important thing then becomes today. We make plans for the future, but what do I do today as a first step to that future? Proverbs says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord establishes his steps. The way you and I align ourselves with the will of the Lord is if we walk with the Lord. The study of his word, the counsel of his people, the ministry of his spirit, those things come together to bring about obedience in our life and aligning ourselves with his will so that we would say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But we tend to flip that. Most oftentimes, and I can even say it, I'm going to go and do this thing, Lord willing. It's a tagline at the end of a statement that I desire to do versus reversing that. And then you could say, well, you're, it's, an argument, it's just semantics. And it could be of how or when or we say something, but if my heart puts the Lord's will first, I can bring my desire into conformity with that is the, is the idea. And it's an issue of my heart, not my mind and what I decide to do. But our problem oftentimes is that we can throw together some options for ourselves. We can weigh those options out on a thing and then we can pick one and then ask God to bless it. Anybody ever done that? You've got something going on in your life and all of a sudden, hey, I desire to do this thing. I think this is a good thing for me. Here's some choices that I have about that. Mm, I'm going to pick this one and I'm going to roll with it. Then all of a sudden you go to somebody that you know, hey, will you pray that this is the right decision? Anybody ever done that? Oftentimes, because we can just flippantly make decisions and all of a sudden we make a decision and we're in it and, it's, and all of a sudden it comes to mind, oh, I want to make sure this is the right one. I'm like, well, it's too late. We've already made the decision. And we're hoping the Lord blesses it. We can weigh out many options, but sometimes also when we look to the Lord and we desire His will, we can ask the Lord for, Lord, what is my will for these things here? As if it's on approval. Let me look at some of these options that I may have, maybe kick that back to God. Hey, God, could you maybe rework this one right here? And then decide, yeah, okay, that feels good. And we go back to that feeling of what feels good to us. Verse 16, following this obedience, James gets to the thrust of it, the point of it. He says, as it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance. And he says, all such boasting is evil. So boast here is in the present tense. It indicates a habitual practice on the part of the people. The, one, the ones that he's writing to is they make this claim to the future. I'm going to do this thing. James says, you're boasting in your arrogance. The word for arrogance there is alatsonai, and it means pride, but it's used two times in the New Testament. It means pride, but listen to this definition for it. It says, an impious, an empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things. The other time that this word is used in the New Testament, New Testament is in 1 John 2, verse 16 and 17. It says, for all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
So James says, all of your boasting about tomorrow and what you're going to do, you're boasting in your arrogance, you're boasting in your pride, with your mindset on earthly things. You're the rich man who's got this mind. I've got all this plentiful grain, and I don't know what to do with it. I need bigger places to store it so that I can sit and be merry and happy here, with a mind here, not on a day in which we're going to have everything we need, far beyond anything that this world would provide. But it's having a mind here and taking pride in that. But James and then John also realize that this world is passing away. But the one that does the will of the Father, this is the one that will abide forever. Not till the end of our days. Not so we can sit and relax with our feet up at some point in time. But abides with the Lord forever. In Psalm 1611, if we're in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. There is pleasure forevermore in the presence of the Lord. That is the place that our hearts should be drawn to. Consider what Paul says of boasting in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Recall from what James said uh, several weeks ago in, in, in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it's not the one who commends himself that's approved. It's the one that the Lord commends. Verse 10 of chapter 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Remember that then? That our problem is we don't want the Lord's exaltation. We want our exaltation and we want it on our terms within our time frame. And that time frame can be either now or sometime in the future. That we determine it to be outside of God's will. But if we look to God's will, we will abide forever and he will commend us. And that should be enough for our hearts. William Ernest Henley, in his poem Invictus, encapsulates this arrogance very well. I want to read this together. He says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. I mean, right there begins to give away his heart. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. What this poem encapsulates is a man that would say, no matter what comes against me, in my days, whatever the future may hold, I will stand against it because I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Such is the arrogance of man to not even bring into account what God's will would be for any of that. But it is that foolishness and that attitude that will set us against God's will. And yes, we may gain everything that we plan for, but in the end, when we're gone, that remains. But the question becomes is what are we going on to? Are we going on to an abiding forever with the Lord and experiencing his pleasures forevermore? Or are we going to experience the loss of everything that we held dear, everything that we planned for, everything that we did for ourselves, contrary to what God's desire would be for us? Peter is an example of someone boasted that he would never deny the Lord. 
but yet he did it three times and fell flat on his face. But then in that example also, even in that boasting and in that arrogance, he had no clue what he was boasting about. But even in that failure, on the other side of it was the Lord. It was the Lord that would lift him up. The Lord would meet him right where he's at. And it set him secure. So to turn a phrase, you could say, write your plans in pencil, then give God the eraser. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord establishes his steps. We should plan. Plan for what we desire. But the thing that we should put in front of that in our hearts is what the Lord's will is for that. And allow for things to change. Many of the ways that we hear from the Lord is simply through failure. Amen? Decide upon a thing. I don't know, countless times in my life, I mean, I decide upon a thing, not really include the Lord in it, or include the Lord and believe as if I hear his voice. I could tell you this for years. I pursued a thing. I pursued a thing. And the Lord was gracious to protect me from the accomplishing of that thing. I think back to that. If I would have accomplished what my plan was in that, oh my goodness. Praise the Lord for his wisdom to meet me on the other side. And in some ways, have the, his spirit, I told you so. Well, I didn't hear you. Why? Because I felt otherwise. So to wrap up, verse 17, James says, Now so, because of all that, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now this verse is very heavy. This verse is very important for you and I. And this verse creates a whole slew of things that you and I can fall prey to and you and I can begin to find ourselves sinful in. It's when we know the right thing to do and fail to do it, for him it is sin. Douglas Moo, he explains it this way. He says that James has urged us to take the Lord into consideration in all of our planning. We therefore have no excuse in this matter. We know what we are to do. To fail not to do it, James wants to make clear, is sin. They cannot take refuge in the plea that they have done nothing positively wrong. As the scripture makes abundantly clear, sins of omission are as real, as, real and serious as sins of commission. I told you I was going to return back to that decision between Panda Express and Whataburger. It's a menial, small decision. Why would I include the creator of the universe and what I'm going to put in my belly? What's going to pass through my taste buds and go into my belly? Why would I include God in that? I would pass that off in many ways. Ah, no. I'll just decide on how I feel. What do I feel like? Well, I feel like Chicken Express. But if I leave it to chance, if I flip that coin between two things, track with me on this. Heads, panda. Tails, Whataburger. I'm too lazy to go get it. I think I'm going to go to Chicken Express. Could I be outside of God's will by going to Chicken Express? Possibly. I'm not in control of the physics of flipping that coin other than the force I exert on it. 
But then it flies in the air, then you have inertia, you have wind, you have atmospheric conditions that keep that thing flipping, slowing it down. Gravity pulls it back to my hand, and I miss it. I might have caught it nine times out of ten, but one I didn't. But if I'm including the Lord in that simple decision, and I decide to go to Chicken Express, who's to say I don't sit down at Chicken Express and encounter a person that's utterly broken, and my heart is, is prompted. My heart, heart is bent towards the Lord. I included him in that kind of decision. But yet I included him. And then all of a sudden I'm in a situation where I see someone hurting. And my heart is prompted to just say, hey, are you okay? And then opportunity. If today is the day of salvation, what if in that simple decision I'm at Chicken Express and it becomes the day of salvation for an individual that is searching for something and utterly broken. And God put me in that position because I dropped a quarter. But I included him in the decision. You see how that can work? Now, I'm not saying we do that every time. But if our mindset is just to exclude him from everything we decide to do, it's my belly, I feel like this today. If it's no, hey God, what do you have for me today? I'm likely to not miss that. That is, that is how we align our hearts with what he desires for you and I to do. That is how we find ourselves in stories and in moments like that. Now, if that were true and I were to stand here and be able to give an account of a specific circumstance where I did meet somebody in that moment and we had a conversation and that person gave their life to Christ in that moment, that'd be an awesome story, right? Would you not respond in a positive way to a story like that? Why does that story not happen for you? Let me tell you the answer. Because we're not including the Lord in our days. If our commission is to go, therefore, to all nations, baptizing them, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, if that's our commission and we're never experiencing that, I promise you, I promise you, church, if you go your entire life and you never experience one moment of that commission, you're not walking with the Lord in a way that he would desire for you to. God's commission is to the church to do that thing. And if the entire course of your life as a Christian never has one moment where you share the gospel and anyone comes to Christ because of your sharing of the gospel, your life is not following the Lord in the way that he would desire. I cannot come to a different conclusion from God's word if that is his commission for the believer. I desire that our hearts would desire that. But that only happens when we align our will with his and make decisions according to his will, not ours. We'll find ourselves in those moments, I promise. But it comes down to a reliance on him and understanding that truth, that if we know the right thing to do and fail to do it, for him, it is sin. So we have opportunity. I have opportunity. Cody has opportunity often to confess sin and pursue repentance so that my fellowship with the Lord would not be hindered. And it can happen simply by knowing the right thing to do and failing to do it. But I'll never recognize it if I'm not seeking the Lord's will. 
I'm blinded by my own. Chuck Swindoll puts it plainly. He says, first know and then do. There are myriad of things in our study of James thus far that we are now aware of. We now know. His point is, if we make a profession of faith, if we make a claim of a thing, and we know a thing, now we should begin to do that thing. I encourage you to go back through the first half of this. The first four chapters of this letter, we're about to head into the last chapter in the coming weeks and wrap this study up, but I encourage you to go backward and look for those things that we've learned the Lord would desire for you to do in your life and ask for his, his help to begin to do those things and then see what he does with your life. I mean, the blessings that will come. I have many, many conversations that are blessings to me. Not because I'm a pastor. Not because I'm on church staff. I would say 100% because I align, seek to align my life with him. And he puts me in places where he needs me and I'm useful to him. And that exists for you all the same. Because you're in places that the pastor will never be. And that's purposeful. But may we seek his will, not our own. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, Lord, it's challenging just to think through our days. And it can, it can be overwhelming to think of all the decisions that we make, that we act upon without including you in. And, and I, don't, I don't mean at all, Lord, to convey to your people, Lord, a sense of fear that they're failing to not stop before every single decision because we make so many decisions just subconsciously. But if our lives are marked by fulfillment of our own desires and are not following after you in any way, then, then it becomes clearer. But it becomes even more clear, Lord, just as your, Lord, as your word teaches us, that if we abide in you, if we connect with you, if we pursue you, Lord, you make our, our path straight. You establish our steps. Things become clear for us when we connect with you. If we walk by your spirit, we won't gratify the desires of our flesh. Just on that alone, those two things are opposed to one another. We'll never see clearly what your will is for our lives if we're constantly looking to fulfill what we desire or what feels right to us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, that feelings are real, but they are not reliable. Lord, it is your word that stands firm. It is our authority. It is our refuge. It is... Everything that we need for life and godliness is given, Lord. And I pray that you teach us, Lord, by your spirit to draw near to you through it, to hear from you from it. With the counsel of your people, the ministry of your spirit that you've given us, Lord, that we would discern what your will is for today. To trust you with tomorrow, to plan wisely, but ultimately, Lord, trust you. As you said, Lord, that we should pray, give us today our daily bread. We do that today, we do that tomorrow and the next day. But we do that on those days when they come. Lord, teach us to live today and live today for you. 
Lord, we love you and we thank you and we need your help. It's your name we